This is the Six Gun Justice Podcast with wordslingers Paul Bishop and Richard Brosh. Hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of the Six Gun Justice Podcast, where we celebrate blazing six gun action of the Western genre. I'm Paul Bishop, and riding drag with me is my brother from another mother, Richard Prosh. Howdy, Rich. Hey, Paul. Can you believe this is already episode seven? You know, actually, if you combine our full-length episodes with our Six Gun Justice Speed Listen installments and our Six Gun Justice Conversation segments, we're talking a whopping 15 various on-air outings. Yeah, Mom said we'd never amount to much. (laughs) She's still right, but somehow we have managed to blunder through the podcasting saloon without shooting our toes off. You're always a ray of sunshine, partner. And since Mom always did like you best, why don't you make yourself useful and tell us what's in store for our listeners today? We're going to be talking about one of the most revered action Western writers to ever tie down a typewriter, Ben Haas, the man behind the pseudonym John Benteen, the name he used when writing his most popular and highly regarded Western series, Fargo and Sundance. We'll also be discussing some of Ha's other pseudonyms, along with a number of other books Ha's wrote, including two of his lesser-known series, Cutler and Rancho Bravo. As you know, Rich, Fargo is my all-time favorite Western series character, and Sundance isn't far behind, so I'm looking forward to the discussion. But how about sharing a couple of reviews to get warmed up? What have you been spending time reading? Having grown up in Nebraska, with a longtime admiration for the Lakota Sioux people, and Spotted Tail in particular... I was overjoyed earlier this spring to learn that David Heska Wombly Wyden had won a Spur Award from the Western Writers of America for a young reader's book on the Si Changu chief, Spotted Tail. Paul, you know I'm all about young people and educating our kids to be the best they can be. So I was eager to read the book, and now I'm eager to share it with our listeners. First of all, as the saying goes, this is a work for ages 8 to 80 and beyond. There aren't a lot of books out there focusing solely on Spotted Tail, And after spending some time with his biography, I'd like to recommend that all fans of Western fiction and history pick it up. Heska Wombly Wyden is a member of the Sichangu Nation, as was Spotted Tail, who was born in 1823 on the White River in South Dakota, and whose first name was Jumping Buffalo. A tradition of the Lakota people is people might have different names at different times in their life. And the times of Spotted Tail's life are well chronicled here, from his early years to his time as a warrior who fought in the Battle of Julesburg to his family life and service to his people as a chief. Paul, it's often suggested that the 1800s, especially in the West, was a simpler time, but Heska Wombly Wyden's prose does a great job of charting out a complex historical sea and showing how a man of integrity, Spotted Tail, navigated the often rough waters. There's a lot to love about the book. The author's ability in balancing the most important aspects of Spotted Tail's character and story, while offering several pages of Lakota history and customs, It's marvelous, and my hope is that readers come away from the book with a sense of wonder and awe for the Lakota people. I'd be remiss if I didn't also mention the beautifully rendered and colorful traditional Indian illustrations by Jim Yellowhawk, a touch that really connects the book to the past. So too, a series of lush painterly works by illustrator Pat Kinsella rounds out the work. It's a superb book that belongs in all of our libraries. Wow, a great endorsement. For my part, I've been digging into the dark recesses of my bookshelves again and decided to reread The Names Buchanan by Jonas Ward. The Buchanan series is highly regarded, as you know, by many Western readers, and Buchanan's a great character. He's a man with a troubled past trying to maintain his dented code of ethics by never turning away from an underdog who needs help. 
He won't sell his guns for any price. He'd never shoot a man in the back, cheat at cards, or be in debt to anyone, which is a description fitting many Western heroes. What makes Buchanan different is despite being six foot six inches tall, he's relatively easygoing with a gentle sense of humor. He's kind and respectful, what you would call a go-along-to-get-along kind of guy. I see him as sort of a Wild West ancestor of Jack Reacher. Like Reacher, Buchanan doesn't go looking for trouble, but trouble always seems to find him, usually as a result of trying to do the right thing. He's laid back, but if you push him too far, you better get ready because he'll be coming and he'll be bringing hell with him. Jonas Ward was a pseudonym for William Ard, an established best-selling hard-boiled mystery writer. With the Buchanan series, Ard simply took his own tough urban crime stories and reinvented them as westerns. The name's Buchanan is essentially a Six Guns and Spurs rewrite of Ard's powerful crime novel, Hell is a City. The mean streets of the city have been replaced with dusty main streets, and the hard-boiled private eye has become an itinerant gunslinger, but the code of the white knight remains the same. I highly recommend the series as a whole, with the understanding that Ard only wrote the first five Buchanan books. He was working on a sixth when he died of cancer at the much-too-young age of 37 in 1960. Other writers were commissioned by the publisher to keep the series going, including Brian Garfield, Robert Silverberg, and William R. Cox. All of the series entries are eminently readable. I've enjoyed all of them, but Ard's contributions are exceptional. I've read the Buchanan books too, Paul, and they compare favorably with the Fargo series that we're going to be talking about later. Before we get there, however, I've got another recommendation for young readers. This one is a series of chapter books. When my son was learning to read, we spent an inordinate amount of time tracking down authors that we felt comfortable turning over to his eager young eyes. If you've been a parent at any time during the past few decades, you know that the chaff outnumbers the wheat and the noxious weeds outweigh the chaff. We longed to share with Wyatt something that spoke to our values, but also provided high entertainment with humor, good-natured action, and not just a little bit of outdoor adventure. We found what we were looking for in Hank the Cowdog by John R. Erickson. It's a series that began in 1982. At present, there are more than 70 printed books and seven audio-only titles. Hank views himself as the head of ranch security on a nameless acreage in the Texas Panhandle while his real job is helping the ranchers slim and loper with the cattle. Each story finds Hank, an Australian shepherd, and his sidekick, Drover, Hank calls him a little mutt, engaged in various mysteries and adventures. Hank thinks much more highly of himself than he should, and the book's humor comes from Hank's first-person narration as he shamelessly promotes himself as more competent than he actually is. It's no stretch of the imagination to say that Wyatt learned to read and learned to enjoy reading by immersing himself in Hank's world, an exciting Western venue filled with good guys and bad guys like the Buzzards Wallace and Junior, the Coyotes Rip and Snort, and Hank's eternal crush, Beulah. I can remember a time when my son and I were reading one of these books every couple days for several weeks, and I think I enjoyed them every bit as much as he did. The newest adventure is The Frozen Rodeo, and it's available on Kindle as well as audiobook and paperback. It sounds terrific. I've seen those books, but I haven't ever read them. But even though they sound like juvenile books, you make it sound like I should go back and pick them up and read them now. They're a lot of fun. Last episode, we talked about some deals that I was doing on eBay because of the pandemic holding me back from getting into used bookstores. I did finagle another deal recently on eBay, snagging what I believe is a one-of-a-kind hardbound, and that's the key element, 
complete set of TV and movie Western magazine in mint condition. The whole package reminds me of when libraries bind back copies of magazines, except those magazines have usually seen hard use before being collected and bound. And I really couldn't picture any public or university library going to the trouble of preserving magazines related to disposable pop culture. Do you figure it was a collector who bound these magazines originally? You know, I really wanted to know, so I reached out to the dealer who sold it to me, asking if he knew anything about the history of the item. It turned out that the dealer bound the copies for his own collection years ago. He's older now and is dispersing parts of his collection. So he was delighted to find out that this item had found its way to a home with a collector who would appreciate the pop culture significance. Tell me about this magazine. I'm not familiar with it. The magazine is a full-size slick, which was a term used to differentiate higher-end, larger-size publications with glossy covers from the digest-size short story magazines or the slightly larger original pulps. You could compare both the size and look and celebrity-driven content to today's People magazine or Entertainment Weekly. It began publication in December 1957 under the title TV Western Roundup, featuring the life and times of Wyatt Earp star Hugh O'Brien on the cover. Inside were 66 pages filled with an amazing array of black and white photographs, mostly of the lead characters from the most popular TV westerns of the day. Accompanying the photos were lightweight, breezy articles about the shows and the actors who starred in them. Often, the articles compared the characters as they were being portrayed on television, such as Wyatt Earp, and their real-life counterparts. By the second issue, in March 1958, the magazine had shortened its title to simply TV Western, and it featured James Arness on the cover. A regular publication schedule was apparently not a priority, as issue three didn't turn up until December 1958, with James Garner on the cover, along with a final change in title to TV and Movie Western. The magazine never really declined in quality, but it did continue this irregular appearance on the newsstand for another 10 issues until its final outing published in March 1960 with Rawhide's Clint Eastwood and Eric Fleming on the cover. I have to tell you, I had a blast being quarantined with time to dig through these bound issues of the magazine, which are a treasure trove of memories and lost informational tidbits from back when Westerns ruled the television schedule and packed movie houses. Sounds like an incredible find. You know, one of the best things about doing this podcast is getting to share with you and our listeners our enthusiasm for the Western genre. Both of us have watched more than our fair share of Western movies and TV shows. Each of us have read a ton of Westerns and have similar appreciations for Lua L'Amour, Elmore Kelton, and many of their contemporaries. But I know the series of Fargo novels by John Benteen, the pseudonym used by the great Ben Haas, is one of our all-time favorites. How did you discover the series, Paul? As you know, Rich, I'm a Louis L'Amour junkie, but as much as I love L'Amour's books, they didn't really lead me on to other Westerns. For years, my daily dose of lowbrow literature consisted almost entirely of two specific genres, hard-boiled mysteries, Hammett, Chandler, Robert B. Parker, and high-adventure novels back from when the high-adventure genre was actually a thing, led by the Holy Trinity plus one of Hammond Inn's Alistair McLean, Desmond Bagley, and Wilbur Smith. I lived and breathed these guys, and despite the enjoyment I found reading L'Amour, his books didn't make me feel a need to delve deeper into the Western genre for whatever reason. But after seeing the movie The Professionals, I was in a used bookstore and stumbled over a couple of battered Fargo paperbacks mistakenly consigned to the mystery section. The cover art of the Fargo books 
made them look like what would happen if The Professionals was rewritten by Alistair MacLean, sort of Western versions of The Guns of Navarone or Where Eagles Dare. I had no idea it would take only 120 pages of Neil Fargo blowing stuff up and shooting anybody who got in his way to change my reading habits forever. How about you, Rich? When did you first begin reading books by John Benteen? The first Benteen books I read were not Fargo books, but rather the two books he first wrote for Belmont Tower's Harry Shorten, The Trail Ends in Hell and A Hell of a Way to Die. By the way, Paul, it's likely been a few years since you read it, but do you remember, in the context of the book, What's a Hell of a Way to Die? I do, and let's just say it's not pretty. Not even a little bit. No spoilers here at the Six Gun Justice podcast, but I think that scene will stay with me forever. And it's not because of the content so much as the exquisite writing. Writing that led me from those two books straight to Fargo. But again, I didn't pick up Fargo number one. Instead, I started with number two, Panama Gold, based on a blog post that I read either by Bill Kreider or James Reasoner. I liked it a lot, but was in the middle of a few different series, including Pete Branvold's 44 line. So I didn't get back to Benteen until I started frequenting this local paperback swap shop with my wife. She would go in and spend an hour trading romance novels and chatting with the nice lady behind the counter and I would sequester myself in the back with the men's adventure, western, and NSF novels. There was no rule about reading while you waited, so when I found The Black Bulls by Benteen, I recall reading about half of it in the store. For the next couple years, I was usually able to find several Benteen titles, either Fargo or Sundance, and I picked up most of the original runs. My favorite Fargo is still Alaska Steel. There's this terrific scene toward the end where Fargo and his gal pal are stranded naked in the frozen wilderness by the bad guy Dolan. I can't recommend that one enough. Naked in the frozen tundra? That's absolutely so Fargo. All of the time, Benteen would place his character into situations that you just couldn't imagine him getting out of. It was like painting himself into a corner. And you had to read on to find out, can he pull this off? Can he get him out of this dilemma? It's great stuff. Fargo's the quintessential tough guy Western hero. The books give occasional bits and pieces about his background. When he was a child, his family was wiped out by a band of Apaches. A neighbor took him in, not out of love, but knowing he would grow into a free hand, a slave. At 12, he ran off and never looked back. He's worked on oil rigs, searched for gold in Alaska, and did a stint as a logger in the great Northwest. He turned his hand to work as a cattle drover, professional boxer, and even a bouncer in a New Orleans whorehouse. However, he really came into his own when he joined the military service, where he honed himself into a deadly weapon a tornado couldn't stand against. His weapons are always highlighted in the books. They include a 38 he carries in either a hip or shoulder holster, depending on his need at the time. It's loaded with hollow points for greater stopping power, and he prefers the 38 to the 45 automatic the Army uses because he feels the 45 has a tendency to jam at the worst moments possible. Fargo has this knife as well. It's called a Batangas, made by Philippine artisans. It has a 10-inch folding blade, which he can snap out with a practice flip of the wrist. It's razor sharp, of course, and said to be able to pierce a silver dollar without breaking or dulling. Being ambidextrous, which has saved his life a number of times, he can use a Batangas to kill with either hand. But his favorite weapon is a Fox Sterling 10-gauge sawed-off shotgun. It's a deadly piece and engraved along the inlay with the words to Neil Fargo, gratefully, from T. Roosevelt. The former president and Fargo are the only ones who know the circumstances behind how he came to receive the weapon, 
but Roosevelt is the only man for whom Fargo will drop everything and come running when called. While the Army taught Fargo how to kill with pistols, rifles, and machine guns, he became an expert with knives, shotguns, and women all on his own time. One of the aspects I find most enjoyable about the Fargo books is they go beyond the scope of traditional westerns. Each one retains the structure we have come to expect from a western, but they take place in not only the west, but also diverse locations such as the Philippines, Argentina, Nicaragua, Alaska, and Peru. This distinction is part of the fun and makes Fargo stand out among its contemporaries. And just so we don't think he's a Superman, we know Fargo has one fear, heights, but it never stops him from doing what needs to be done. He takes the biggest jobs and commands the highest prices. When a job is done, he throws himself with a vengeance into a debauchery of drinking, gambling, and women until he needs to take another job. He's seen what age did to Wyatt from Bat Masterson, who he knows, and he has no desire to grow old and doddering like them. So he saves no money. He doesn't plan for the future because he knows sooner or later he'll stop a bullet, which doesn't bother him in the least. In that attitude that you just described, you can really see in the character of Fargo the coming of Jack Reacher. Absolutely. Along with many other of those same type of heroes. Fargo's an original. And then there's Sundance. The other popular series character Haas wrote as John Benteen. Jim Sundance is a half-white, half-Cheyenne adventurer. In his 30s, he's a man who has roamed and fought across the length and breadth of the U.S., moving between the worlds of the white man and the Indian. Sundance is a typical Benteen hero, tall, broad-shouldered, with a slim waist and a lean, powerful build. He has the complexion and features of a Cheyenne Indian, but his hair is this bright golden blonde, a gift from his English father. On top of his unusual heritage, Sundance carries an unusual arsenal. In typical Benteen fashion, his main character is very deliberately armed with an assortment of weapons from both cultures. Sundance carries a Navy Colt and a Henry repeating rifle, as well as a Bowie knife with a 14-inch blade and a handguard for knife fighting. He carries a steel-bladed tomahawk as well and a Cheyenne dog soldier's war shield and bow and a quiver of 30 flint-headed arrows. Benteen goes to great length to note Sundance prefers flint tips to steel, claiming they deliver a more grievous wound. Sundance can kill a man at 400 yards with that bow or put an arrow through a buffalo. These incredible range of weapons in both the Fargo books and the Sundance books, they really are something that the reader comes to expect. Yeah, you're right. Over the course of almost every novel, Sundance puts every weapon in his arsenal to use. It's interesting to see how Sundance typically uses the white man's weapons for everyday carry, but when he really means business, he tends to favor his more traditional arsenal. My favorite is still the first, Overkill, guest starring Wild Bill Hickok and setting up an intense rivalry between Sundance and General George Armstrong Custer. Paul, just for trivia buffs, around this same time, Charlton Comics published backup stories in its long-running Cheyenne Kid and Billy the Kid's titles, starring a half-Apache adventurer with bright red hair called Apache Red. I have no idea if this was a direct Sundance influence, but there was more than just a passing resemblance to Benteen's character. They're very different writers, but for sheer storytelling ability, I believe Ben Haas is in the same class with any of the more popular and better-known Western wordslingers. Haas is definitely a fascinating guy. During the course of his career, he wrote 130 novels. Some were under his own name, but most often he used a number of different pseudonyms and publishers' house names. 
We should perhaps take a moment to explain the difference between writers using a pseudonym and writing books under a house name. In general, when an author uses a pseudonym, it belongs to him the same way his real name does. If he changes publishers, his pseudonym goes with him. Writers often use pseudonyms when writing different series or writing for different publishers. Back in the days of the pulps, as you know, Rich, if an author had several different stories scheduled to be published in the same issue, only one would be published under their real name. The others would be published under pseudonyms or even house names. Now, there are exceptions where the lines get blurred, but unlike pseudonyms, house names belong to the publishing company. The publishers might create and package a series with the individual books being written by different writers, but all are published under the same house name for marketing purposes. Getting back to Haas, his goal was to be a mainstream writer, but he needed to pay bills while waiting for his serious fiction to find a publisher. Accepting an offer from publisher Harry Shorten to write a Western for his paperback imprint, Tower Books, Haas furiously banged out The Trail Ends in Hell, which I mentioned earlier. Shorten was impressed and gave Haas a contract for a second Western, which would be titled Hell of a Way to Die. At the time, Shorten was also trying to launch a new Western paperback series called Lassiter. Shorten envisioned Lassiter as a real hard case with a dubious sense of morality, basically a violent semi-sociopath concerned only with his own gain and lust. Shorten had originally hired established Western writer W.T. Ballard to write the first books in the series, but even after four books, Ballard couldn't shake off the traditional values championed in most Westerns. Shorten was frustrated, but when Haas turned in a hell of a way to die, Shorten seized upon it as the solution to his problem. With a few editorial changes, Hell of a Way to Die became the fifth entry in the Lassiter series and was published under the house name Jack Slade. So it would be natural to assume Shorten would want more Lassiter books from Haas, but instead, writer-editor Peter McCurtain took over the Lassiter series and the Jack Slade house name. In this case, recognizing the real potential in the tightly written, fast-paced, muscular prose on display in A Hell of a Way to Die, Shorten asked Haas to create an original Western series instead of continuing on with Lassiter books. Haas responded by assaulting his typewriter again and letting loose a granite-hard Fargo in the series of neo-Westerns which we now consider classics of the genre. Using the pseudonym John Benteen, which he adopted from one of Custer's cavalry officers, Haas wrote 20 of the 23 Fargo adventures, which began publication with the self-titled Fargo in 1969 and ended in 1977 with Fargo 23, Dakota Badlands. Either due to a dispute with Shorten over money, or simply because Haas was unable to keep up with the demand of Shorten's punishing publication schedule, Fargo number 15, Sierra Silver, number 16, Dynamite Fever, and number 17, Gringo Guns, were attributed to John W. Harden, a pseudonym taken from a real-life outlaw. While there are various, provably incorrect theories, fiction scholar Lynn Monroe, the last word on all things related to Benteen Haas, believes the man behind the mask of John W. Harden was most likely Norman Rubington, a prolific hack writer who also wrote an entry in Benteen's Sundance series. Starting with Fargo 18, Hell on Wheels, Haas picked up the John Benteen pseudonym to write, or co-write with his son Joel, the last six books in the series. Rich, I'm glad you correctly labeled the first of the three books to be attributed to John W. Harden as Fargo number 15, Sierra Silver. However, the cover of Sierra Silver claims the book is number 16 in the series. Have I managed to confuse you? I am pretty confused. Well, you're not alone. 
This misnumbering has led to a dispute over the total number of books in the Fargo series. Is it 23 or 24? The problem started when Fargo number 15 mistakenly turned out to be a reprint of Fargo number 8, Wolf's Head. This caused Belmont Tower to put number 16 on Sierra Silver, even though it was actually only the 15th original book in the series. Consequently, this ambiguity triggered the misnumbering of all the remaining books in the series. I have a theory, though, that this might not have been a mistake. In preparing for this episode of the podcast, my detective instincts went on alert regarding the timing of the situation. I think the reprinting of Fargo number 8 as Fargo number 15 might have been done deliberately by Harry Shorten, who is not above indulging in publishing shenanigans. We can only speculate at this late date on the reason why the three Fargo books written by the eponymous John W. Harden were inserted into the series, but we do know the first of them, Sierra Silver, is actually the 15th book in the series. No matter what the reason was behind the trio of Harden books, a dispute between Haas and Shorten, Haas needing a break from the rapid pace of publication, or something else, but it most likely started after Haas delivered Fargo number 14. In order not to lose a saddle of momentum the Fargo books have built up, Shorten had to keep the series on a regular schedule. If he didn't, readers might stray away to another Western series when a new Fargo title didn't appear. To salvage the situation, Shorten needed a stopgap to buy time while the next three books were being written by a different wordslinger. And Abracadabra, Fargo number 8, Wolf's Head, is suddenly revealed as Fargo number 15, Wolf's Head. What do you think, Rich? <laughs> I think you think way too hard about the minutia, but the bottom line is no matter what the reason, there are 23 original Fargo books, not 24. Mm, not necessarily. What? Okay. I know I'm getting seriously into the weeds here, but I had a conversation with Piccadilly Publishing Ramrod and Fargo fanatic Ben Bridges a few months ago. Both of us now suspect that after the Fargo series ended its official run of publication, which included translation into a number of foreign language editions, a German publisher surreptitiously kept the series running, using different writers and keeping the distribution of these new, unofficial Fargo novels exclusively to Germany. As we speak, Ben and I have unleashed Interpol to launch an investigation. You are very much a glass-is-half-full kind of guy. However, I don't need Interpol to tell me where Haas found his inspiration for Fargo. Common consensus is he based Fargo on a character named Faradan, as portrayed by Lee Marvin in the 1966 movie The Professionals. The screenplay for the film was written by Richard Brooks and based on the novel A Mule for the Marquesa by another great Western wordslinger, Frank O'Rourke. In his script, Brooks gives a clear description of Lee Marvin's character, Faradan, stating, he was one of Teddy Roosevelt's Rough Riders, served in the Philippines, was a wildcatter and gold prospector, and worked for Pancho Villa. When we meet him, he is demonstrating automatic weapons to the Army, but then he is offered $10,000 for a dangerous assignment. Sounds familiar? Faradan, Fargo, what's in a name? Clearly the description of Faradan fits Fargo perfectly. Especially when you consider Faradan also smokes black cigars and is partial to wearing a campaign hat and cavalry boots both of which are mainstays of Fargo's wardrobe. When Piccadilly Publishing, under the direction of your buddy Ben Bridges, began issuing the Fargo novels in inexpensive ebook format, the covers all carried artist Edward Martin's interpretation of Lee Marvin as Fargo in different action poses. Mm, running the risk of being accused again of obsessing over minutia, the whole Faradine fargo dynamic became very meta when Frank O'Rourke, who wrote the novel in which Faradin originally appeared, later 
reinvented Fargo yet again as Andreas Shotgun Aru, the hero of his 1976 novel, The Shotgun Man. You know, you know way too much about this stuff. What can I say? Fargo is just my go-to guy. <laughs> the Fargo series and other westerns remained Haas's financial golden goose, despite finding some success in the literary arena of mainstream novels. Starting with The Foragers, a serious Civil War novel published in 1962, Haas continued alternating hardcover novels under his own name with genre fiction paperbacks under pseudonyms like John Benteen, Richard Mead, Thorne Douglas, and many others for the rest of his life. Fargo had some help making the house payment from Sundance. As a series, it was almost as successful as Fargo and certainly ran much longer. Sundance is a fascinating character, and the series is a mix of standard Western themes with Benteen's own unique style laid over. The action is fast and violent, the level of detail extraordinary. The Fargo and Sundance series were both extremely popular. As with the Fargo books, the publishing schedule for the Sundance books was very demanding. To keep up with the demand, five Sundance novels were published under the house name Jack Slade and written by a trio of journeyman scribes. But when Haas passed away in 1977, W.T. Ballard, who initiated the Lasseter series, came back and continued the Sundance series with two further adventures published in 1979. You would have thought Shorten would have learned his lesson with Lasseter, but he brings W.T. Ballard back for these two books. Sundance was a cash cow for Shorten. So he took the reins away from Ballard and gave them to the longtime editor of the series, Peter McCurtain, who we mentioned earlier. McCurtain went on to write another 18 Sundance novels on his way to becoming a legendary, if somewhat notorious, icon in action paperback originals. That said, I think you'll agree with me, Paul. Haas Benteen's voice in the original Fargo and Sundance Tales is golden, while entries from other word slingers are sometimes hit and miss. The McCurtain Sundance novels are particularly all over the place, usually depending on how fast they were being written. However, even Haas could stumble. With the success of Fargo and Sundance, Harry Shorten asked Haas for a third original series. The result was Cutler. It was a lot to expect the lightning of Fargo and Sundance to strike again, and it didn't. Cutler turned out to be little more than a firework sparkler left out in the rain along with the cake from MacArthur Park. And it's pretty clear why. Cutler is plain nasty. Fargo and Sundance are hard, violent men, but there's something honorable about them. A characteristic Cutler wouldn't recognize if it bit him like one of the rogue animals he tracks. I feel the concept of a hardened hunter taking on rogue animals with a bounty on their hide is unusual enough and relatively a cool idea. Physically, Cutler is again a traditional Benteen hero, a tight-lipped, leathery, physically imposing hunter of men. The background of the series has Cutler as an experienced federal marshal who retires with his new bride to a ranch in Arizona. All is ideal until a rogue grizzly, a huge monster with a silver blaze, goes on a berserk rampage through Cutler's ranch, where it savages Cutler's pregnant wife. Cutler rides in just in time to catch his wife's dying breath, telling him about the bear, and he immediately starts to hunt down the beast until a blizzard causes him to lose the trail. Five years pass, Cutler has become a nasty drunk who makes his living hunting and killing rogue animals with bounties on them, but the biggest rogue still eludes him. Unlike most bears, this monster stays on the move, killing anything in his path, with Cutler always a step behind. It's not exactly a laugh a minute. Hardly. Haas only wrote the first two Cutler books before he let the series be taken over by Vernon Hinkle, who added four more titles before the series was shot down, probably by Peter Acolyte's Gone Rogue. 
<laughs> I, I much prefer Haas's more positive Rancho Bravo series written for Fawcett's gold medal line under the pseudonym Thorne Douglas. With alternating points of view in each book, the Rancho Bravo concept would have made a terrific 70s Western TV series. The first four books span a one-year time frame after the end of the Civil War. Ex-Confederate rebel Lucius Calhoun, Texas trail boss Henry Gannon, Yankee officer Philip Kilrain, and ex-slave Elias Witten each tell their own story of coming together to build a Texas cattle empire. Calhoun is a bitter, one-handed ex-plantation owner who has lost everything in the war. Gannon is a Texan trying to start a new ranch with wild cattle. Black cowboy ex-slave Elias Witten is Gannon's partner in the Enterprise. When Kilrain quits his commission as a captain in the Northern Army to join them, Rancho Bravo is born. The fifth book in the series, The Mustang Men, switches point of view again to tell the story of Shan Tyree, who comes to work at Rancho Bravo. Clearly, Haas had a vision of having visitors or employees of Rancho Bravo tell their own stories in each successive book. Unfortunately, he died prior to book five being published and before he could see his vision of an expanded Rancho Bravo series come to fruition. While I'm still partial to the short, sharp, brutal Fargo tales, Rancho Bravo, in my opinion, comes close to those iconic series and is not to be missed. I agree with you. I really like that series. It's not quite Fargo, but it's way up there. Before we wind this episode up, I also want to mention Haas's books written under his Richard Mead pseudonym. These include a number of standalone westerns such as Cartridge Creek, Gaylord's Badge, and Big Bend. As Richard Mead, he also wrote novelizations for the TV series Cimarron Strip and the movie Rough Night in Jericho, along with two little-known but excellent fantasy novels, The Sword of Morningstar and Exile's Quest. For me, Haas' westerns stand apart from the other western series published during that same era. His work is far superior to the violence-soaked westerns of the Piccadilly Cowboys in series such as Edge and Crow, and they are nothing like the adult sex and six-gun shoot-em-up western series such as Longarm, Jake Slocum, or The Gunsmith. Ha's genius was in the combination of harsh, realistic, ferocious action and the adventurous backgrounds, which made him unique and also set his work apart from the more traditional Louis L'Amour style of western. And that's a wrap for this episode as a clock over the bunkhouse door tells us it's time once again for our shootouts and shoutouts. A big thank you to our main sponsor, Wolfpack Publishing Trail Boss, Mike Bray, who has helped tremendously to spread the word about the podcast. We also appreciate our stalwart Patreon backers, including our latest supporter, Matthew Higgins. If you are enjoying the podcast, please check out the Six Gun Justice Patreon page and consider giving a monthly stipend to help us keep kicking up trail dust. There's also a button at the top of the sidebar on the Six Gun Justice website for one-time donations. Every little bit helps and goes directly back to the show as we upgrade sound equipment and keep up with recording and hosting fees. Your comments on our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram apps are always appreciated as well as your emails to sixgunjusticewesterns at gmail.com. Next week, I'll be hosting a speed listen installment taking you behind the scenes of my favorite TV western, The Rifleman. And in two weeks, on episode eight of the Six Gun Justice podcast, we're getting the posse together and heading to Dodge City in a showdown with Marshall Dillon and Gunsmoke. Until we meet again, be kind to each other, be kind to yourselves, and stay healthy. Adios. We're out of here. Let's ride.
Join us in two weeks for another episode of the Six Gun Justice Podcast, sponsored by Wolfpack Publishing, bringing you the best of the West, including the Avenging Angels and Gunslinger series by A.W. Hart and many other best-selling Westerns, available on Amazon in ebook and paperback.